So we know that we generally regard people by the various accomplishments that they went through in this life. Ted Williams was known as the greatest hitter who ever lived. Billy Joel is known as the piano man. Tom Brady is called the GOAT, although I would beg to differ to that. I think the real GOAT is Bobby Orr. Uh, Tom, um, Joe Namath, Broadway Joe. Frank Sinatra was called the chairman of the board. And our various political people we had, President John Kennedy was known for his work during the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, President Harry Truman was known as the atomic bombings of Japan that ended World War II. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was known for the New Deal. And of course, Richard Nixon was infamously known for Watergate and his involvement in Watergate. But the real question is this. What will people say about me? What will people say about you? What aspects or qualities of your life define you? After you pass on, and go home to be with the Lord, what will people remember about you? They might say, he was a good father. They might say, she was a good mother. They might say, you were a hard worker or a very smart person. Or they might remember that you were a wealthy person. And if a wealthy person, they may say he was generous. He was generous with what God provided him with. Or they may turn the other coin, and hopefully they won't say he was very, very stingy with his money. They might think you're a loving person. Well, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer to this question on how all believers should desire to be remembered or regarded as. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us what should define our life. And you know something? I believe that anything short of this in our life would be considered to be a failure. We may acquire a great deal of wealth. We may become the most prolific brain surgeon or accountant or lawyer. But if this doesn't define your life, I believe you wasted the time that God has given you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, picking it up in verse number 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Let's look at a definition of what this word regard basically means in this context. To regard is to reckon or account to someone. It's to put to one's account. It's a person's reputation at what defines their life. It's how we remember them. It's how we remember them when we think about them, it's how we remember them when we think about them after they pass on. We've had some great senior saints who have come through this church. And when we think of these people, this is what comes to mind. They were servants, and they were stewards. We all remember Guy Angel. When we think of Guy Angel, what do we think of? A man who was faithful to God when the church was first starting up. A man who was a steward with what God gave him of taking this church and this assembly and keeping it online. He would come here on Wednesday nights during prayer meeting and turn all the lights on in the old building and just sit there in case someone came to pray on a Wednesday night at the early beginnings of the church. Doris Cole, I can still see her sitting at the organ in the old building for many, many, many years playing the music and, and being faithful. Russ Peterson, the great encourager, encouraging us through the word of God. Andy and Doris Potvin and their ministries here in the church. Harriet Kenny. 
Dr. Myron Houghton, when he would come here, the great punster, and teach us in, during these Bible seminars that we would have. And Dr. Percy, who would come in and just give us the word of God. When we think of these people, what we remember is their faithfulness to God. That's how we should desire to remember. It should be the goal of each and every one of our lives to be known as servants of God and stewards to what God entrusts us with. So if we want to do this, if this is the goal in our life, we should do it right. We should want to do it right, correct? This should be the way we think with this. So let's look at Scripture this morning and see how God tells us to be good stewards and good servants. The first thing we want to look at is servants of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1 says, We should desire to be regarded as servants of Christ. Now, a servant is to serve under the direction of someone else, a minister, attendant, or associate in any work. And in the context that we're looking at this morning, I believe it's a minister of the words of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul used this title for himself in his epistles. Romans 1.1, and these verses will be on the screen. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostle, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Again, a very good definition of what it means to be a servant. You're a servant of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. You're called to be an apostle, a minister of the word, and you're set apart for the gospel. You're set apart for God's service. In Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Uh, Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of God's faith, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. James, Peter, and Jude, and John also use this title for themselves in their epistles. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a servant of the apostle, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. What does all this have in common as we look at this in context of what we're talking about? These men, in their Holy Spirit-inspired epistles, wanted to make it known, first of all, what was of utmost importance to them. They wanted us to know who they were. They wanted us to know who they represented. And they wanted us to know how they wanted to be remembered or regarded in their life. This was what they went through at the very beginning to set the tone as we read their epistles, as we studied their epistles, exactly what they were all about. Now turn with me please to Matthew chapter 20, in which we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ also considered himself to be a servant, a servant of man. Matthew chapter 20, and we want to look at verses 25 through 28. We're cutting into the context here, but we want to get the flavor of what the Lord Jesus Christ wanted us to see about his ministry here on earth. Matthew chapter 20, picking it up in verse number 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. If we want to learn how to be a good servant, we need to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry and the way he perceived his mission from God. He gave his life, it says, as a ransom for many. A ransom is the money that is paid to release a slave so that those who accept the Lord Jesus Christ, substitutional death on the cross, have eternal life and eternal salvation in his name. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is a very important piece of scripture because it tells us the goal of a servant. The first goal of a servant is to do the will of him who sent me. And the second goal is to accomplish his work. Now, please turn with me to Philippians, was our reading this morning, chapter 2. And we want to look at the example that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us of good servanthood. What is good servanthood? What are the qualities of a good servant that we should have and that we should glean from this passage so that we can be good servants and do it correctly? Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle Paul tells us right at the beginning in verse 5 of what we're supposed to do. He tells us here that we're to reflect, direct our minds to reflect the perfect model of being a servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Now, he goes on in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, to display two very important characteristics that each servant should possess in order to do it correctly. The first characteristic is to be sacrificial. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, co-equal with God in every aspect. He was, in this passage, it tells us, in the form of God as he was before his incarnation. In John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, the Bible tells us this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the sacrificial was he gave up. But we're going to look at this in a moment. He emptied himself of the expression of his deity in order to come to earth and accomplish God's will and plan for redemption. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the Bible tells us this, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In all aspects, in all ways, the very nature of God possessing the divine glory and the divine nature of God. Colossians 1.5 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. Yet, as he said in John chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 34, that he came to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work in accordance with the Father's plan for redemption for all mankind, he gave up the expression of his deity. Now, Jesus in his incarnation did not cease being God. He was still fully God and he was fully man. But what he did was he gave up the expression of his deity. Notice what it says again in chapter 2 and verse 6. Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, a thing to be grasped is something that you hold on to very tightly. You hold on to it very tightly for your own benefit. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't think the, the, the expression of that deity was something that he should hold on to tightly. Because remember, before his incarnation, he was in heaven with the Father, experiencing all the worship, presence with the Father, and joy of being in heaven. But he did not consider that to be a thing to be grasped. It says that he emptied himself. Now, when he emptied himself, he gave up status or privilege, the status or privilege that he had of his deity. So in, in accordance with Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, what the Lord Jesus Christ did this was, he counted the interest of others much more significant than his own interests. And that's what being a servant is all about. That's what sacrificialness is being all about. He gave up the status or privilege of his deity. He emptied himself of the heavenly, uh, the heavenly uh, privileges that he enjoyed with the Father before the world existed. And he did this taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was fully man in all aspects. And fully man, being fully man meant that he was going to have to die, die on the cross. And that sacrificial death is the propitiation for our sins in which God forever was satisfied with the payment of sin by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins and my sins. He did this sacrificially. Being fully God, the, the perfect Son of God lived a perfect life, and in living that perfect life, was able to pay the penalty for our sins that none of us could ever pay on our own. The second aspect we want to look at from this passage is a servant must be sacrificial, but a servant must also display humility. And humility can be a very, very difficult thing for a lot of us because within our human nature is that pride, that pride in our own accomplishments, that pride in our own, in our own uh, way of doing things. It can be a very, very difficult thing to overcome. But let's look at what it says about pride in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was one thing to take on human form and to experience all the um, aspects of a human life, hungry, tiredness, pain, thirst. We see all that as we look through the Gospels. These were the human traits that the Lord Jesus Christ exhibited. But to become obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, is the ultimate humbling of your own, of your own interests. Death on a cross was not for Roman citizens. It was reserved only for the vilest and most fierce of criminals. So when we look at this and we look at this through the scripture and we see the things that the Lord Jesus Christ went through in his death, the humiliation, the pain, the suffering, the beatings, being spit on, that's the ultimate in taking a humble servant's attitude, being beaten to the point of non-recognition and being spit on. I mean, to me, that is mind-boggling. But yet, he submitted to the plan. He knew the plan. He knew what was going to take place. And he submitted to it for your sake and for my, for my sake. The cross is, was the most painful and humiliating form of death a person could go through. And this was the exact opposite of the divine majesty that the Lord Jesus Christ had with God the Father before his incarnation, obedient to the point of death, totally humiliating himself and being humiliated. The result, the result of the Lord Jesus Christ's humble and sacrificial servanthood was total exaltation, accommodation, reward from God the Father. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This gives us an illustration of God's joy and acceptance of faithfulness and servanthood. It shows us that he rewards those who are faithful in their service to him. Now, these rewards may never come in this lifetime that we have now, but we are assured eternal reward in heaven if we serve God in a sacrificial and in a humble way. The Lord Jesus Christ said this in John 6, 38. He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's all summed up for us very nicely in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It'll be on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we take this passage and we look back at the Philippians passage, we see it says, looking unto Jesus, 
the perfecter, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This draws us back to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Look to him. You want to be a faithful servant? Look to him. Look to his example. He's going to give you that example. It tells us also that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There's the sacrificial aspect that we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It also tells us that he despised the shame. There's the humility. The humility that needs to be part of a good servant's life. And finally, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the inexpressible, eternal reward from God the Father, which should be the goal of each and every Christian. The things we accomplish here on earth are going to be left here on earth. The cars we drive, the houses we build, maybe the, the, the companies that we build, but what will be remembered, remembered and last forever is this servanthood and how you serve the Lord. And we, we said at the very beginning, we went through a list of people that we all know. That's how we remember them. You know, every time we think of those people, that is exactly what we think of them. We remember their service among us, how they maybe visited us when, when we were sick or, or brought us a meal or gave us an encouraging word or led us in a worship service or we sat through their Sunday school classes. That's what we remember about them. And that's how we also should desire to be remembered. Applying this to ourselves, look at Philippians chapter 2 again, verses 3 through 5. The Bible tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition. That's being sacrificial. But in humility, that's humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ requires us to follow this example, act sacrificially, act with humility in serving others, being motivated by God's love and Jesus' example, his perfect example of servanthood. Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3, the Bible tells us, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, our calling to be servants, sacrificial and with humility. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 goes on to tell us that, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we saw what it takes to do it right in being a good servant. We saw what it takes. It takes following the example that the Lord Jesus Christ had given to us of sacrificial, a sacrificial life and a life lived in humility. Now let's look at what a faithful steward of the mysteries of God is. We're going to look at a few definitions to kind of get an idea in the context of the uh, 1 Corinthians passage, what these words mean, and then apply it as we go down through, through our, the rest of our conversation this morning. A steward, it tells us that we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. A steward is one who has authority over a specific charge. 
one who administers a specific task or assignment. In other words, in this context, it's a minister of the gospel, entrusted with the mystery of the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. A faithful steward is one who is trustworthy and sure, trustworthy in our duty to others. There's relationship back to being a servant. Confidence, people have confidence and identification to perform a duty or a task. And this probably in this context is the most best definition, can be relied upon to proclaim the gospel based on reputation. Being faithful is when people look at you, they know right off the bat, go do this, you're going to do it. There's no question in their mind that doesn't have to be said twice. They know that if you say to them, look, I want you to do this for me, that that person is going to go out and they're going to do it and they're going to do it to the best of their ability. That's the kind of reputation we want to have. We don't want to have the kind of reputation where someone asks us to do something and then they got to remind us to do it again and again and again and again. A good, faithful servant, say it once, you know they're going to do it, you have confidence that they're going to do it correctly. Now, a mystery is something into which a person needs to be instructed to know. Facts, doctrines, or principles not previously revealed, and in the context of this passage, the gospel, the long-hidden and first-revealed truth in later times, and all the aspects of the gospel that go together. All the aspects that go together of the gospel. So, it's summed up like this, being a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. We are called to be trustworthy ministers of God's revealed truth. That's what we're to be. Trustworthy ministers. God gave us the, um, the, the charge. He entrusted us with the mystery of the gospel. He entrusted us to preach the gospel, and we just go out and do it. And God knows we're going to do it, and he trusts us that we're going to do it. So we proclaim the gospel to others. We share the gospel with the lost. And we live the gospel as an example to all the people that are around us. What are these mysteries of a faithful steward? We don't have time to explore these very deeply, but just to get kind of a flavor of the type of mysteries that we're to be good stewards of. These, these verses will be on the, on the screen. First of all, we're stewards of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 17, the Bible tells us this. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have reward. And if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. This kind of says it all. Necessity is laid upon me to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Was you ever working or out and something great happens and you just can't wait to get home to tell your wife what happened? I'll call my wife. When this happens during the day, I'll call my wife ten times during the day. Sometimes when it gets to be about the fifth or sixth time, she's not answering the phone anymore. <laughs> but still, I, I can't wait to tell her something that happened. Great during the day. That's the gospel. We have within us the life-giving, life-saving, life-generating, life-empowering message from God. Woe to me. Woe to me if I don't tell other people about this. Woe to me. 
Necessity is laid upon me to convey the gospel. And it says, if I don't do it, that doesn't take the stewardship away. If I don't do it, if I say I'm not going to preach the gospel, I still have that stewardship. It's still a requirement of me as a Christian to tell others of who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about and how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and how by accepting him we have eternal life. That is our mission. Even if we don't do it, we still have the requirement to do it. Similar to your tax return. Very, very uh, um, down to home to me. Very similar. If you don't do it, you still have the responsibility to do it. Some people say, I'm not going to file a tax return this year. I don't believe in pay. You still have that responsibility to do it. Same here. If we don't preach the gospel, we still have that requirement. It's still part of us. God entrusts all believers with the responsibility to proclaim his word to others, to proclaim the gospel. And if we proclaim the gospel, as it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 23, I do it all, the Apostle Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. So there's great reward in preaching the gospel. We're also stewards of the fact that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs to God's promise. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs to God's promises. The mystery, it tells us in this passage, is now revealed that through the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ has united Jews and Gentiles in one body. They're heirs and co-heirs to the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. What does this tell us? Salvation, the gospel message, is for everyone, regardless of who you are, your gender, your race, your color, your nationality. It's for everyone, all united together as heirs and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.17 tells us that we're heirs and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. It tells us this. It also tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 2, that Jesus is the heir of all things. So the wonderful truth of this, and this is why it should, we should be motivated to, to preach the gospel, we should be motivated in this stewardship because we're heirs of all things too. It's, it does, it's, it's a totally beautiful picture of what life should be all about, what, how we should live our lives where the Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs. No one is outside of God. No, one is, no sin is greater than Jesus' sacrifice. And all people are available to preach the gospel to, and all people have the availability to accept Jesus as their Savior. All these are kind of related to each other. We're also stewards of the Word of God. Notice Colossians 1. Verses 24 through 29. I now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So here's the stewardship. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all energy that he powerfully works within me. God's plan of redemption through Jesus has been revealed to all and it's revealed in the scripture. Like we have the availability or we have the stewardship of proclaiming the gospel to everyone, how do we do it? We just simply say what the Bible says. We proclaim the word of God. We use God's words because they're perfect. They're concise. We explain them when they're, di when they're difficult for someone to understand. But we use the word of God in, our, in everything that we do to explain to people not only the gospel, but how they should live through the gospel and what the gospel means to them. See, a lot of people think that you know, I'm saved, that's the gospel. You live every day through the gospel. The gospel strengthens you for every task that you have. You're in Christ. You're in, you're, 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 he empowers you. It tells us at the end of this passage that uh, he says, for I toiled struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The power of God will strengthen you and equip you for your role as a steward. And it's our responsibility to make God's word fully known in a world that, number one, does not seek after God, does not know God, and kind of forgets about God. So many people go through each and every day of their lives not thinking about who God is and what God has done for them. They just go about living each day, getting up, going to work, getting up, going to work, and they forget the whole purpose of this. The whole purpose of our lives is to bring glory to God and show God's immeasurable greatness in saving a fallen people. People don't think about this in their lives. I was thinking the other day, I'm getting up as I'm getting closer and closer to retirement. I was getting up the other morning and I was shaving. And I said, you know, I've been doing this for 30 some odd years. That's the way most people live their lives. They get up, they go to work, they get up. They, and it's just a cycle that continues without any purpose or motivation. The motivation is to get to a point of retirement and then what? You live maybe another 10, maybe 20 years if you're lucky and then that's it. But what happens after? The word of God makes known to us what happens after. And it's our responsibility to tell the world that doesn't seek after God how to go about their lives that will bring glory to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And we are ambassadors from Christ. And how do we accomplish this task? We simply preach the word. Tell everyone about who he is and what he's done for them. It's our responsibility. It says that it's a stewardship from God, it tells us in this passage. We're also stewards of warning against false teaching, and false teaching is everywhere today. 
There's all kinds of people that take the word of God and take it and twist it and manipulate it and do various exercises and gyrations in it for their own benefit in their own pocketbook. And it's our job to guard the truth of God's word and to make sure that it is taught rightly divided and that people understand what it really means, not what they perceive that it means. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4.1 in the New King James, it's called the doctrine of demons. The doctrine of demons. Anything that takes God's word and distorts it is the doctrine of demons. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God. There it is again, that stewardship from God to teach the word rightly divided. That is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Again, as we said, there's a lot of false teaching on there. And false teachers have their way in this day and age because the media is out there and you can turn on your computer or your television at any point during the day and you can have some sort of a message going out there. But a lot of these people that we hear promote things or say things that are for their own benefits to draw people to themselves. That's what they want to do. They want to draw people to their gospel, not the true gospel. Their gospel. Oh, if you do this, this, and this, and this, you'll have money, you'll have fame, you'll have fortune. The Red Sox will win the World Series every year. <laughs> they have their own way of, of, get, of drawing you to themselves. They're not drawing you to the Savior. We point to Jesus and his word. They point to themselves and their words. We have a responsibility, a stewardship to defend against that, to God, God's word and refute the claims of these false teachers with the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures that we've all grown up with, that we hear here, that we're taught here, and that we have a responsibility to go out and tell others about. We're also stewards of the use of spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. There's God's enabling power. He gives us a stewardship, and he enables us to do it. Without him, we couldn't do it properly. And then it goes on. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God, through his Holy Spirit, has entrusted each and every believer with at least one spiritual gift that we're to use in our local assembly for the benefit of those around us and we're to use it with love in serving our fellow believers. 
It's a stewardship from God. It's by God's various grace to each one of us. We all don't have the same one, but we all have a stewardship to exercise our spiritual gifts in our local assembly. It's a responsibility. So let's summarize this. We went through this kind of quickly. So we're called to be faithful stewards of the gospel. We're called to be faithful stewards of the fact that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs to God's promises. We're to be faithful stewards of the word of God and proclaiming it into a lost world. We're to be faithful stewards of warning and disputing the claims and the words of false teachers. And we're to be faithful stewards of using our spiritual gifts in our local assembly. Again, how do we do it right? We want to do it right. We just don't want to go through the motions and then find out that we didn't do it the perfect way. We look to Scripture to teach us how to do it right. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, a very well-known passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Bible tells us this. The Apostle Paul challenging Timothy and challenging us also. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So it tells us right off the bat that this is something we're going to be judged by. This is something that when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, he's going to see whether we did this and whether we took this stewardship seriously. It says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, as for each and every one of us, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, fulfill your duties of being a steward. It's very simple. A faithful steward preaches the word. He doesn't stop preaching it. He does it regardless of time and circumstances. He does it in season, when people want to listen to it. Maybe everything's going right in their lives and it's nice to hear it. He does it out of season when people are in a valley, a deep, dark valley, and they just don't want to hear it. Or they're immersed in a sin and they just don't want to give it up. It's very difficult to go to someone and say, brother, I love you, you're sinning. Here's what God's word says. Very difficult, but that's what we're to do. That's out of season. In season, hey, everything's going great. We see how God's blessing you. Everything's going fine. Boy, you know, you're such an encouragement to us all here. But we're to preach the word. This week, how did we react to the circumstances that were going on in the world? Did we, like other people, say, oh, there's somebody with their finger on that button, and they're getting ready to press it? Or did we say, calm down. God's in control. He's in control. He's the one that's going to make the decisions. These people are pawns in the game. God uses all things for his glory. God's in control. Let's trust in God. If someone pushes that button, next Sunday morning, Pastor Rob's preaching to us in heaven. Wouldn't that be a great and wonderful way to, way, way to worship God? We're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the word. It's a stewardship God has given to each and every one of us. But the sobering fact is, we see it in verse 1, we're going to be judged whether we do it or not. It's going to be something that we're going to have to face Jesus with when he says, 
I gave you 75, 80 years on earth. You've taught my word. You, you, you were a faithful steward. Or he looks and he says, I brought so many people into your presence. I gave you so many opportunities. But you needed to work. You needed to work hard. You needed to work harder for things that you've left behind now. It's our responsibility. We're going to be judged for what we do. This is all wrapped up very nicely in Matthew chapter 25. Turn there with me, please. So we're in Matthew chapter 25, very well-known parable to all of us. But I think it kind of sums the whole thing up that we've been discussing together this morning. Matthew 25, picking it up in verse number 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once without haste and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what is my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we have a master. He's going away on a journey. He has three servants. He calls to each and every one of them and gives them a stewardship to manage what is his. Does that sound familiar? We're given a stewardship to manage the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're given a stewardship. To do what is this. But notice what it says too. To each one according to his own ability. So God's going to supply you with the ability to do it. But he's not going to require you to do more than what you are capable of doing. He's not asking you to go out and do something that you can't do. He's asking you to serve him and with the spiritual gifts that he's given to you. He's given these to you. He's asking you to do what you can do through his grace. No more. The first and second servant, 
What do they do? They act faithfully. It says the first one goes out with haste. He doesn't waste any time. He just goes right out and does it. He's out there serving, serving his master. Where he's out doing what his master wanted him to do. He had, they acted faithfully, the first and second servant. And they doubled the money that was given to them. The third servant, he misinterprets his master's mission. Because maybe he didn't take the time to really look to see what his master was like. And what the rewards would be. And what the benefits of serving him are. And who he was and what he required. That's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at what the requirements for being a good servant and a good steward are. He didn't get to know his master. So what did he do? Did it his own way. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm afraid. I'm just going to dig this hole. I'm going to put it in there. I'm going to do it my way. But that's not the way he was instructed to do it. He misinterpreted who he was. And the result, as we saw, was eternal punishment and separation from his master. But the, but the first and second servant, look at verses 20 through 23 again. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you've delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, and I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Similar. One guy had ten. One guy came forward with four. Same, right? No, no difference. So what's this telling us? It's not quantity. It's quality. What you do with what God gives you is what counts. Some people can do a whole lot more than others, but it's no different. It's reward and praise from God himself. These men hear what we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, if we don't hear that in our life at the end, it may not seem, brother, sister, right now, with what you've got going on, in those de that day and age, it'll drive you to tears. It'll drive you to tears. There's going to come a day before the great white throne, I mean before the, the, the Bema seat in heaven, we'll be praising God. We'll get rewards from him at the Bema seat. And those rewards, it tells us in Revelation, the book of Revelation, that we'll have the opportunity to cast back at our Savior. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel and have nothing to cast back. Shame, wasted life. The Bible is very clear on how we're going to be judged as faithful servants, as good stewards of God's grace. Look at, on the screen, you'll see 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me. That's each of us, every one of us, God giving us a task according to our own ability. Given to me, given to you, it's all different. God will equip us to be servants and stewards. Like a skilled master builder, 
I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So he's telling us right here, this is the foundation, this is the gospel. Go out and be servants and stewards of God. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. That is the first and second servant. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Being a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is a reputation that we all should diligently strive for. However, we can't do it alone. We must first give our lives to Jesus, turn from our sin, turn to Jesus' free gift of salvation, Unless you've turned to Jesus and you've accepted him as your Savior and are empowered by him, you can't do it right. You're not going to be able to do it right. You need that power within you from the Lord to strengthen you. And you know something? You can count on him. You can count on him that he'll supply your needs. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 tells us this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So let's ask God to help us in achieving this goal. Let's ask God to empower us and equip us so that we can do this correctly and hear those words, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, your word calls us to be good servants. Your word calls us to be faithful stewards. However, without your grace and empowerment, this is a task that is impossible for us to do in accordance with your commands. Through your spirit, Lord, humble us and equip us to serve you with opportunities that you entrust to us as faithful stewards. We rely solely on your grace and power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.